Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 9, Daniel says, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched Till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed." In this first vision of Daniel, we're given, again, a brief glimpse of heaven and the future. The veil is torn away, and Daniel watches. Note that word watch or watching in verse 9, in verse 11, verse 13. It's a word that rivets us to the vision that's at hand. And what he sees includes a summary judgment of all things. In these few verses, Daniel sees the Ancient of Days seated in heaven's glory and a summary execution of the fourth beast in a burning flame in verses 11 and 12. Daniel is a witness to the final judgment and the Son of Man receiving a mighty, glorious, eternal kingdom in verse 14. Every single person who has ever prayed the prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, is revisiting this vision. Remember, Daniel has already seen a wing-like beast in verse 4, a bear-like beast in verse 5, a leopard-like beast with four heads and four wings in verse 6, a terrifying ten-horned beast, which doesn't seem to correspond to any earth-like creature in verses 6 through 8. One of these horns, a little horn, with eyes and a mouth, speaks pompous words we know against the God in heaven in verse 8. And in this most e amazing economy of words... 
Daniel sees the rise of nations and the fall of nations. He sees the rise of kingdoms and the fall of kingdoms. And he sees a revelation of a future king and the future king's forever kingdom in verses 13 and 14. Daniel sees two beings in heaven. One pronouncing judgment and the other receiving dominion and glory. From the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation, there's only one vivid description that's given of God the Father in heaven. It's the text right before you. This is the only vision that's given of the Father and the Son. Let's see what we can discover. Look what it says about the ancient of days in, verses, in verse 9. It says, I watched till thrones were put in place. And the ancient of days was seated. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame. Its wheels a burning fire. Daniel observes Thrones put into place. And again, I can't even begin to tell you about the amazing amount of information that's given in the fewest of words. It's as if all of human history is compressed in a moment, in a singular moment. He sees thrones put in place. And by the way, that phrase can be translated, till thrones were cast down, it says in the old King James, or till thrones were set. The, the idea being entrenched or put in place. Daniel's vision greatly resembles Revelation chapter 4 and, and 5, where there are at least 17 references to thrones. There are references to God's thrones in, in the book of Revelation and the thrones of the 24 elders who apparently make up a kind of celestial court who observe and who contribute, if you will, and who acknowledge the judgments of God. Again, they seem in part to be set up in preparation for the coming judgment of the fourth beast and the little horn. So it's a picture, those thrones are a picture of rule and authority. The exile, and, and again, I want you to pause and just think about what you're reading. Because remember, remember what we've learned, that the book of Daniel is about the rising of kingdoms and the falling of kingdoms and the unveiling of human history. So again, the exiles in Babylon must have wondered from time to time, is God really in charge? Is God really in control? Are Israel's remnant in captivity? Are the promises of God truly going to come to pass? Are they going to return to Judea and Israel? Has God abandoned Israel to the whims of foreign powers and earthly rulers? It's the reoccurring question that you might have at some point in your life is God really in control 
Is everything happening exactly as the Bible says, as it was predicted from old? Has God abandoned his people? Has God abandoned me? Does God think about me or care about me? Does he care about my future? What is God's plan for his people? And of course, what is God's plan for me? Now again, we pause in the passage because whatever the plan is, whatever that plan is, it's God who assigns the power to kingdoms. It's God who not only assigns the powers to these kingdoms, but it's the same God who will judge these kingdoms. And so the central theme of this chapter is one of the great themes of the entire Bible. God will not leave his people in a place of permanent suffering. Those who love the Lord, believe the Lord, trust the Lord, look to the Lord, await his glorious kingdom, realize what Paul wrote in the New Testament, that this present suffering is momentary. It's just for a moment. It feels like it's going to last a very long time when it's happening in your heart, when it's happening in your marriage, when it's happening in your circumstances, those who love the Lord and believe the Lord will find themselves in the Lord's glorious kingdom. The Gentile rulers who have so long placed themselves in opposition to the rule of God will one day be punished. They will one day be judged. You sing the song. The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So who is this being that Daniel calls Yatik, Yomim, the ancient of days? The phrase finds no other usage in biblical revelation other than later on in this very chapter. There is no exact Hebrew equivalent in the reference to Jehovah. In Psalm 90, Moses uses a phrase that sort of approximates this phrase, from everlasting to everlasting. Thou art God. Most of us are aware that the names of God re reveal something about his nature and about his character. We think of the word Yahweh or Jehovah, which speaks of the intrinsic ability, if you will, of God to be a self-existing creature. There's only one God. This singular God is a self-existing God. There's never been a moment when this self-existing God did not exist. 
He is the one who makes promises and keeps promises. And oddly enough, when I was studying this particular passage, I was literally driving from the church to the, my house, and there was a popular song from the 90s that came on the radio from the Goo Goo Dolls. You're laughing because you're going, what does this have to do with the text? There's a song that they sing. And I don't want the world to see me. Because I don't think that they'd understand. When everything's meant to be broken, I just want you to know who I am. When I thought about this, this song, here's this, it's in the popular culture, they're screaming, they're crying. I don't want the world to see me this way. I don't think that they'll understand when everything's meant to be broken. And everything does appear to be broken. But it's not true. Not everything is broken. There is a singular thing that has survived unbroken. It's the faithful covenant-keeping God who exists. He makes promises and he keeps promises. You see, we live in a world that looks like everything was made to be broken. But there is a God who exists. Some scholars see in Daniel's description of God, the ancient of days, as a reference to his eternality. What theologians call his aseity, or a reference to his eternal being. Others point out that its primary meaning may be God's exclusive role as ultimate judge, which reflects Daniel's name, which means the Lord, the Lord is my judge. If that's the case, then Daniel's vision of God putting all the thrones into place, whether those are earthly powers that are spoken of or whether that's a celestial establishment that takes place throughout eternity. It is who he is. He reserves the right to judge all. He reserves the right to allow every single being who occupies whatever temporal throne or eternal throne. And we're given his name, Ancient of Days, or the Everlasting One. Where his clothes are spoken of. Look what it says. His garment was white as snow. Now again, is this invisible, eternal God that vision that sometimes people have of this old man in the sky wearing a robe? Remember what I told you last week for those of you who were here? A symbol can never mean what it never meant. And so remember what I talked about also about apocalyptic literature. It's highly symbolic. And so what in the world does this mean? This garment speaks of purity and unmatched holiness. And so when it says his hair and the hair of his head was like pure wool, I think it's a reference to 
experience and majesty because I think that we're getting the wrong picture if we go, you mean God's in heaven? Yes, he is. You mean he's an old man? The idea of an old man subject, suggests that he started out young and now he's old. Make no mistake about it, my face isn't a symbol. I'm an old man. I know some of you are thinking, you, you've got a few good years left on you. Thanks for saying that. The image that's given to us isn't about a God who starts off young and then proceeds to be old. The image is supposed to tell you about wisdom and maturity and integrity. I think that it is a symbolic reference to majesty, experience, authority, and then his throne is described. Look what it said. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels like a burning fire. Now see, some people might think, he's an old man and that's some sort of celestial wheelchair. No, that's not the image that the original writer is trying to impart to the original reader. The wheels aren't <laughs> so that you can just simply, because he can't afford to get up and move around, it speaks not just of mobility, but again, it speaks about what fire does. Fire speaks of righteous judgment. Fire consumes that which is temporal. Only the eternal can survive fire's consumption. And so whatever this is and however it works, it speaks of a quality of majesty. In his wonderful book, Unlocking the Mysteries of Daniel, Dr. Wallace Emerson writes, and I quote, how does one describe the indescribable? What words can convey to earthly senses the awesome majesty and beauty of him whose garments were light itself and whose court was the shining angelic host and as the beauty and majesty of this great assize, which means assembly in old talk, so is its terror to those guilty ones who stand before it with no advocate to plead their cause and no righteous substitute as an offering for sin, unquote. And that's exactly right. Imagine in the most temporal sense of the word that you're in a moratorium or a crematorium and there's a raging inferno right in front of you that's designed to consume human bodies and blast it into soot and ashes and particles. Whatever this is and whatever it means, it means that the temporary will not survive in its presence. Only that which is eternal 
can survive the fire's consumption. And by the way, this is the only description of the father in the Bible, and it corresponds to this description that's given by John the apostle in the book of Revelation concerning Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, which has caused some people confusion. Because they'll say, you mean the father is the son? No. The father is not the son. The father is distinct from the son. So is Daniel describing the father in this passage? Yes. Is John describing Jesus in the passage in Revelation chapter 1 verse 9? The answer is yes. And I hadn't planned on doing this, but I think I want to go there to Revelation chapter 1 verse 9 and just read it just quickly it says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island of Patmos. And as you go down, you'll hear a voice that says in verse 11 that, that identifies himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And then there is a description that's given of him. It says in verse 13, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the son of man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, girded with, about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes a flame of fire. And you might be thinking, what in the world is being described? It's a description of a being, an eternal being, who is absolutely holy and just and unapproachable. And so, when Dr. Wallace says, it's supposed to terrify those guilty ones who stand before it with no advocate to plead their case, no righteous substitute as an offering for sin for the stupid, and I mean that in the most gentle way, person, for the stupid person who elects to stand before this supernatural being on their own, apart from Christ, apart from his grace, apart from his mercy, apart from his generosity, apart from his love, will not survive the encounter. We, we see his throne, but we see this river of fire in verse 10. Look what it says. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated. Apparently this reference to the court being seated is a reference to a group of celestial beings who take their seat in the great judgment hall, the books are opened again. I want you to think about what you're reading. In Daniel's vision, the focus goes from the throne to the throng, 
from this place of absolute authority to the multitudes, there is a stream of fire like a raging river that bathes the beings in, in the celestial court. The thing that I think about in this, there, there's so few words, we're at a loss for words, but this raging river is like some sort of volcanic explosion where you have a river of fire that will consume everything that can be consumed. This raging river of fire becomes a fount of blessing at the great white throne judgment when it's complete. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 1, the vision isn't of fire coming out of the throne. The vision in the future is water coming out of the throne, life-giving pure and refreshing. Isn't this interesting? That the element that destroys the temporary then becomes the element that feeds the eternal forever. The numbers aren't meant to give us a precise calculation of those celestial beings who exercise functions of ministry, but rather it's given to leave us to wonder how so vast a multitude could fit in such a courtyard. If you grew up in a small town and you all of a sudden find yourself in New York City, or if the largest football game or sporting event you ever went to was your high school football game, and now you walk into Bronco Stadium, it can be a little overwhelming as you see 80 or 90,000 people. But imagine you don't see 80 or 90,000. Imagine you see hundreds of thousands of millions of people so vast that they become innumerable. The point of the passage isn't to try to figure out the numbers. The point of the passage is to leave the reader with the impression that whenever this celestial court is in session, anyone who is ever anyone and everyone will be there. I want you to pause for a moment. I'm going to take a moment and look at you. And as I'm looking at you, I want to remind you that each and every one of you will be there. You will be in this multitude. And would you be angry with me if I told you it's going to be sooner than you think? Oh, I'm not saying you're going to die today or even tomorrow, but you will make your way to this place. You will make your way to this place and the books will be open. The celestial court will be in session. And look at that expression. The court was seated. The books are open. These books are not kept because God is forgetful. I have a minder because I am forgetful. I have to write down my appointments I have to write down my schedule. 
God isn't writing this down because he's afraid he might forget what you did. Human memory and human history might be subject to falsification, exaggeration, or revision, but not so with God. John Phillips writes, quote, he keeps records not because he needs them, but so that those who are condemned might face the record of their own action and words. No incident, however small or seemingly insignificant, in all the long history of man's tenure of this planet has escaped the all-seeing eye of God. It is all written down. There is no fake news in heaven. Yeah, you can. Do you think that the books are available in an electronic format? An audio or a video form? And there should be a sinking sense inside of you that says, I don't want that film shown. I don't want that information disclosed. I don't want it ever to be seen in heaven. And there's only one way that that's going to happen. Because if you think that God is going to edit the film to avoid the... To, in, in order to not offend the sensibilities of the citizens of, of heaven, you are greatly mistaken. The prophet Daniel sees God judging the multitudes based on the record of their lives. And the biblical record is clear. Human beings will give an account of their lives before God How will you measure up in the final analysis once the scrutiny is complete? There's only one way to survive. And that's to say, Jesus. Jesus is the measure of my life. Jesus, I want you to evaluate my life based on the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. If you appear before God on any other basis, then this raging holiness will consume what was your life. Paul talks about it and hints about it in the New Testament when he talks about our works, both good and bad and right and wrong. However they're motivated, some like wood, hay, and stubble will evaporate. But if there's anything precious, if there's anything valuable, if there's anything good, it will survive. And we see the judgment of fire. Look what it says in verse 11. I watched. Then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. Pause. What just happened? His attention goes from heaven back to the earth. 
Daniel's focus is now lifted just for a moment from the scenes in heaven. He looks back on the earth. He sees the pompous words or hears them what that the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. The, the, the scene moves from the throng, from the throne to the throng, dare I say it, to the thrill. In what way? The king, this king, this ancient of days is making good both promise and threat. God has a long account to settle. Remember in the book of Revelation, the saints underneath the throne are crying, how long, how long, O Lord, how long, how long is injustice going to continue? How long, how long will wickedness and evil prevail? How long, how long, at what point will each person Will those accounts be settled? And it would seem that the greatest account that needs to be settled and the greatest justice that will have to finally be served will focus on the bad actors who have acted behind the scene in order to make life so miserable. It would appear that Daniel could hear the sound of the blasphemies coming from the mouth of the little horn from verse 8. This antichrist figure continues his speech. And I'm going to suggest to you that he is speaking on the earth, but his words are heard in heaven and the final beast is slain and the little horn is judged. And we read about this in Revelation chapter 19, verse 19 and 20, or excuse me, Revelation chapter 19 that goes all the way to chapter 20, verse 10. In verse 11, we're told that the body is destroyed and then given to a burning flame. In the book of Revelation, John writes in verse 20, then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. This is that place that Jesus talks about that was prepared for the devil and his angels. What is this place and why is this place? And I'm going to suggest to you that they're cast in alive and they remain alive. Do you want to know why? Because Lucifer was created a being who would last forever. If you're under the impression that angels can be killed, you would be sadly mistaken. Angels are immortal beings that cannot be destroyed. When angelic beings are fighting against malevolent angelic beings, it is never a fight to the death because neither one can die. 
And so it is with you. You'll never ultimately be extinguished. Your light will never go out. There will never be a time when your consciousness ceases. For the wicked people who teach universalism and annihilationism, what they forget is that if there is no hell, then there's probably no devil. And if there is no devil, there's probably no sin. And if there is no sin, there's probably no savior. But there is a savior. There is a savior. The beast is killed. In what sense? You just said that they can't die. I'm going to suggest to you that the beast that's killed is either a reference to the fall of Rome or the future fall of a revived Roman Empire. People can't die. But kingdoms can. Kingdoms can come and kingdoms can go. This may be a reference to the revived final Empire led by the Antichrist, the kingdom and its king is not killed by a rival earthly kingdom, but rather it's destroyed by the arrival of Jesus himself. We know that from Revelation chapter 19, verse 20, and Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. Scholars are divided over what constitutes the beginning and then the middle and then the end of the time of the Gentiles. We think that the beginning of the time of the Gentiles takes place in 606 BC when Nebuchadnezzar sacks Jerusalem and burns it. Will the rapture of the church start this final countdown? Will the second coming of Jesus put an end to the time of the Gentiles, which is mentioned in Luke chapter 21, and, and, then, and then again in, in verse 24, and then again in verse 27. The phrase seems to be a reference to the Gentile domination of Jerusalem. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time, which I am going to suggest to you that in some way that I don't completely understand, the kingdom of Babylon, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, the kingdom of the Greeks and the kingdoms of the Romans, whether it is in their culture, whether it is in their language, whether it is in some sort of human significance, it will survive. To the coming of Jesus and then into the millennial kingdom. It would appear that the rest of the beasts, those are the earthly kingdoms, have their dominion taken away, but earthly kingdoms continue. And then we see the Son of Man and an eternal kingdom. Look what it says in verse 13 and 14. I was watching, again that phrase, in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. To who? To this Son of Man. He was given dominion, rule, 
glory. What kind of glory that, that reflects God? And a kingdom. What kind of a kingdom? Who does it include? All people, all nations, all languages, so that they should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And now we discover something. Human kingdoms are temporary. Jesus' kingdom is eternal. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Well, what could that possibly mean? Daniel writes it out, which shall not pass away. What does that mean? And his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Pause for just a minute and just think about this logically. There's two kinds of kingdoms. Those that are temporary <laughs> and those that are eternal. All human kingdoms are temporary. One kingdom is singularly eternal. And so when it says, I was watching in the night and behold, one like the son of man is the messianic title. The ancient of days is a reference to God the father and now son of man is a reference to Jesus, the son of God. And in the new Testament, this is his favorite designation of himself. His constant reference is Son of man. He could be called a lot of different things. But this is his title of choice. The clouds of heaven have been called the royal robes of deity. And again, I'm going to suggest to you that the reason why he's called the son of man is because of his identification with humanity. And some have suggested that the clouds are real clouds. Others have suggested it's a reference to the multitude of saints and celestial beings. Most agree that whatever it means, it is a depiction from a symbolic standpoint of the sun's unmatched majesty, unmatched glory. So the, the scriptures consistently picture God the Son in reverent and humble submission to God the Father. This reverence and humility never precludes or eliminates worship or honor or glory. In other words, the same worship, the same honor, the same glory that's given to the Father is given to the Son and the Messiah is given dominion and glory and a kingdom and no one, no one, no one is exempt. Well, what if you speak Arabic? Not exempt. What if you're black? Not exempt. What if you're white? not exempt. All human beings who are made in the image of God were meant to participate. His kingdom is immutable and incorrigible. Immutable means not subject to change and incorrigible means not subject to perfection. And the dominion is everlasting. And the definition given in the charge is the very definition so that you can't make a mistake. 
It will not pass away. It cannot be destroyed. It is never subject to change. And this is a reference to an earlier promise made and now kept in Psalm 26, verses 6 through 8, where it says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth shall be your possession. Jesus will occupy the planet earth and rule it in glory. This passage may have been what Jesus exactly had in mind when he told the religious leaders in Matthew chapter 26, verse 64, I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. It's when he repeats the words of Daniel that the high priest says, we don't have to listen to anything else. Jesus claims to be the being who's described in this passage. And if you don't find it there, look in Luke chapter 21, verse 27, and again, repeated in John chapter 1, verse 51. In the Bible, clouds, like I said, speak of power, glory, majesty, but there's one other element that it always includes, the presence of God. You'll remember that the Lord God appeared in a cloud in Exodus chapter 16, verse 10. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 9, at the giving of the law at Sinai, this cloud comes down. And you'll remember that when he guides them through the wilderness, it's a pillar of fire and a cloud, which speaks of the presence. So can we exaggerate the coming of Jesus? I don't think it's possible. I guess it might be possible. The Bible places the greatest emphasis on this singular subject, the coming of the Messiah. The second coming is given more than any other theme. There are 318 references in 216 chapters, whole books, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, whole chapters, chapter 24, chapter 13, Luke chapter 21, Revelation chapter 19, all of these are devoted to this singular subject. Jesus speaks of his second coming in John 14, 3. Remember, he said, I go to prepare a place for you. To receive you to myself. Matthew 24, 25. Mark 13, the angels bear witness. In Acts chapter 1, verse 11, Jesus is ascending into heaven. And the angel says, why are you guys looking up in the sky like, like you're from T-shirt Kansas? This same Jesus that you see ascending in heaven will come in like manner. This same Jesus taken up from you into heaven shall in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven the same way that you saw him leave, you will see him come. Humanity is full of great days. The day of creation, the 
the creation of man and woman, the birth of Israel, the birth of the church, the birth of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, but there are still two great days that await us. The rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, repeated in 1 John chapter 3, behold what manner of love the fathers lavished on us that we should be called the children of God and such we are. And it does not yet appear what, what we shall be, but we know this, that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. The rapture and the second coming of Jesus. Alexander McLaren preached, the primitive church thought more about the second coming of Jesus than about his death or about heaven. The early Christians were looking not for a cleft in the ground, he spoke with a Scottish brogue, but called for a grave, but a cleavage in the sky called glory. I wish I could have heard him say it. He said, the people in the early church were not looking for an undertaker but an upper taker. One old Bible teacher whose name escapes me when asked, what signs do you look for in the coming of Christ? The wise old pastor said, I've stopped looking for signs. I'm waiting for a sound. I'm waiting for the sound of a trumpet, the sound of an archangel. Augustine pleaded, quote, he who loves the coming of the Lord is not he who affirms it is far off or he who says it is near. It is he who, whether it be far or near, awaits with sincere faith, steadfast hope, fervent love. He said it so well, why, why should I say it? But I'll repeat it. You are given permission to look for Jesus with sincere faith, with a steadfast hope, with a fervent love. We haven't even finished the seventh chapter of Daniel. Can you see why I love this book? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, even as we are able to close our eyes and fold our hands and look up into heaven, Lord, you've given us an honest vision of what we can know. It never ceases to amaze me how people will throng churches and fill thousands of seats to hear a story about a person's visit to heaven, but are reluctant to believe what Daniel says or what the Apostle John says what the Bible says about this singular subject. Lord, it makes perfect sense to me that there are people 
who have stories to tell. But Lord, we know that there's one story that's singularly true and that everything that the Bible says about heaven is true. And Lord, I pray for that person who's never given very serious thought and reflection to the fact that they will one day close their eyes and their heart will stop beating and the blood will stop flowing through their body. But that there's something that survives. A person survives. A person who was meant to live forever who will stand before you in judgment. Lord, I pray that that person would now make the decision not to stand before you in judgment, but rather to plead and to plead that they're a sinner, that they need a savior, that they need this Jesus, the son of man, to be their savior, the forgiver of their sin and the reconciler of their lives. And Lord, I pray that they would pray a simple prayer, something like, Lord, I know that you're in heaven. I know that you sent Jesus. I know and I believe that Jesus came to this earth to live the life that I could never live, to die on a cross for my sin and that he came back to life so that I could be saved. And Lord, I want my sins forgiven. And I want to have a right relationship with you. And I want you to write my name in the Lamb's book of life so that when the books are opened, it won't go to the section that just simply tells the sad story of my miserable, rebellious life. But rather, Lord, it will mark this moment when in humility and submission I conceded that everything that the Bible says about Jesus is true and I invited him to come into my life and to be my savior. In Jesus' name, amen. And if you prayed that prayer, I'd love to be able to talk with you after the service. We'd love to give you some more resources Let's stand.